You've seen those movies where they say, make my day, or I'm your worst nightmare. Well, listen to this one. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. Ha! You didn't know I'm gonna say that, did you? Your move, creep. And welcome to the Film Feast Podcast. I am your host, Matt Bledsoe. And we're doing something a little different today. I've been talking about this for a while and it's finally happening. This is volume one in what will be our monthly series called Unscottable. Each month, we'll be going through the filmography of the late, great Tony Scott in chronological order. It will usually start with just me... Uh, talking and giving a little background on where we're at in Tony Scott's career and usually some background info on the film. Then after that, I'll go into a conversation with a guest about the film. So that will be a lot like the normal episodes of the show. Uh, this month, we are, of course, starting with Tony Scott's debut, which is 1983's The Hunger. Before I go any further, though, I just want to give credit to my buddy Mark Warner for this idea. Months ago, he'd posted on Twitter about the idea of doing a Tony Scott podcast called Unscottable, and I loved the idea. <laughs> Eventually, I talked to Mark, and he said he wasn't going to do it anymore, so I asked if I could do it as a series on this podcast, and Mark agreed. So, huge shout-out to Mark, and thank you again, my friend. I hope I do you proud. Next, I have to give credit to a book I've been reading, which has been a huge asset in doing research for this podcast, and that is called Tony Scott, A Filmmaker on Fire by Larry Taylor. It's been a wonderful resource, and I've really enjoyed reading it, and I've learned a lot from that book. So, why have I chosen to do this series on Tony Scott specifically? Well, as you may have guessed, I'm a huge fan of Tony Scott's work. The man helped revolutionize the modern action blockbuster and had a career full of movies, uh, that were all unique in their own way, while still being clearly the work of Tony Scott. The other reason I want to do this series is, is Scott as a director that when he was alive, I never quite felt he got the credit he deserved. I've seen more Tony Scott love in recent years online, but still, I just don't feel like he's, his work is discussed quite enough, and I still don't think he gets enough credit for how great he truly was. I think part of that is due to the type of movies he made. Most were big blockbusters and action films, which do tend to get looked down upon, especially in critical and cinephile circles. Another reason is that Tony was living in the shadow of his very successful older brother, Ridley Scott. Ridley got more of the critical success. He's the one that always got the awards and more of the recognition throughout both their careers. But all the while, Tony was carving out his own path and making a whole slew of interesting films for 27 years. So now this opening won't usually be this long. But before we get into his movies, I think we need to go all the way back to the beginning. On June 21st, 1944, just 16 days after the American troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, Anthony David Layton Scott was born to Colonel Francis Percy Scott and his wife Elizabeth. Tony was the youngest of the three boys. His older brother was Frank, and of course the middle brother was Ridley. The family had moved all over England during the war, but finally landed in the industrial town of North Shields, England. While older brother Frank followed in his father's footsteps and joined the army, Tony and Ridley both baffled their, baffled their father by getting, gaining a love and a passion for the arts at a young age. They started playing around and making their own movies and would act in each other's short films. 
Now, a theme that will probably come up a lot during this series is that Tony and Ridley got along great, loved each other very much, but there was always a bit of a competitive nature between the two. Tony was constantly following his brother's footsteps. He attended the same art schools as Ridley when he was younger, but after Ridley began attending the Royal College of Art in London, Tony was initially denied admission. He ended up going to a different school and followed one of his other passions and majored in painting. But Tony still had the itch for filmmaking and made a short film called One of the Missing, starring his brother Ridley. This film was good enough to get Tony into the Royal College of Art in London on his second attempt. Tony graduated, still with the focus on becoming a painter. Uh, while he found out that making money as a painter was nearly impossible, Ridley was finding success with his own commercial production agency called RSA, or Ridley Scott Associates. Ridley really, really wanted Tony to join him at RSA so he could at least just make some money. <laughs> but Tony resisted for a while, trying to make it on his own. But eventually he gave in when his bills had become overwhelming and he just got married. RSA turned, up a, turned out to be a great place for Tony to hone his craft, as the commercial work was constant and allowed him to try all kinds of different approaches. RSA was also filled out by several, several other talented directors like Alan Parker, Hugh Hudson, and Adrian Lyne. When Tony would get the occasional TV episode or TV movie throughout the 70s, he desperately wanted to make a feature film. He started to see all of his peers get their shots to direct features. Alan Parker directed Bugsy Malone in 1976. Ridley released The Duelist in 1977 and then followed up two years later with the game-changing masterpiece Alien. Adrian Lyne was tapped by producers Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Sipson, who of course would go on to play a very pivotal role in Tony's career in just a few years to direct Flashdance. Uh, and Hugh Hudson directed the Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Chariots of Fire. So in the span of just a few years, all of Tony's peers had gotten their shot to direct feature films and all had found success, and he was feeling left behind. Fortunately for Tony, his shot was coming very soon. Producer Richard Shepard was looking for someone to direct an adaptation of Whitley Stryber's vampire novel, The Hunger. Shepard initially wanted Alan Parker for the directing job, but Parker turned it down because he was busy with other projects. He did, however, tell Shepard that he thought he knew just the right guy for the job. Enter Tony Scott. Tony jumped right into making the film with a stellar cast consisting of Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon, and a tight budget of $10 million. Tony was said to have a lot of confidence on the set and a good command of the production for a first-time director. Product, uh, producer Richard Shepard was not sure about Scott's overly stylish approach at first, but he changed his mind once he saw the first dailies. Tony Scott was on his way to completing his first feature, and he was doing it his own distinct way. The Hunger opened on April 29, 1983, and unfortunately was a critical and commercial failure. Critics slammed the movie for everything from being too concerned with style to being misogynistic. Now, in my conversation with Lindsay, I made a mistake about the box office. I said the movie made $10 million, but it actually made less than $6 million worldwide. So a critical and commercial failure from all counts. So even though Tony's career had not gotten off to the hot start he'd wanted it to, it wouldn't be too long before he'd find massive success. But that's a story for next time. So right now, I'm going to play the trailer for The Hunger, and you can all hear me and my guest, Lindsay Wilkins, talk more about The Hunger. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. 
She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve. The cruel elegance of David Bowie. The open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. Combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Haunting, mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. All right, everybody, I am here with our very first guest on our Unscottable series. Talk about Tony Scott's 1983 debut, The Hunger. She is one of my favorite people to talk movies with, and I'm so happy she's here for this uh, first episode. Uh, she's been a frequent guest on this show, and she is, of course, the host of her very own wonderful podcast, Schlock and Awe. It's Lindsay Wilkins. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? No, I'm really excited here to um, be on the first um, Unscottable um, show, especially talking about The Hunger. Yes, well, thank you for being here. I am so happy to have you as the first guest on this series because I love talking movies with you, and I know the two of us get together, we can talk a lot. So I think we'll be good here on things to talk about. So I'm really looking oh. forward to it. <laughs> no. Oh, yes. Every single time I think, oh, no, it'll be a quick conversation. Three hours later, we're still going, oh, but what about this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Never quick. But we, we will. We do have a real focus this time that might help us. I don't know. <laughs> we just have the one movie to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we will see. Yeah, I was just thinking, going, I usually just talk about one movie. This is going to be interesting. I know. <laughs> Of course, your show known for double features. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast are probably aware of your show. But um, I just want to give you a chance right at the top just to talk a little bit about Schlock and All and kind of the idea of it or kind of what your what your, uh, I guess, goal is with that show. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I can just really talk about movies, um, to be honest. <laughs> um, but my, you know, my goal is um, it's a double feature podcast. So it's always pairing um, movies with one another. But what I kind of like to try and do is to either try and pick two movies you wouldn't necessarily think go together or two very kind of similar theme movies that but do them in completely different styles. Um, like the last one I put out was um for uh with daniel the great daniel Lepper from um cobwebs um fantastic four from 2005 and um and the four of the apocalypse almost forgot what my own show was there <laughs> and they actually complemented each other really well though you cannot get more different than tim story and lucio falci um <laughs> and by the time this comes out i just would have put out an episode with um carmelita valdez mccoy on Videodrome and Natural Born Killers, which um, are actually really similar, but and also kind of tell the story of of violence on TV through the eighties and nineties. Um, and that was really fun, just because I saw um, Natural Born Killers in a completely new light. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of thing I like to do with the show. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And yeah, if anybody is like new to this show and isn't listening to Lindsay's show, you should definitely check it out because it's great. I've uh, been on there a couple times, had a lot of fun. Um, that double feature with Carmelita sounds like a lot of fun. I kind of want to do that now. <laughs> um, and the episode with Daniel was great. The Fantastic Four, Four Day Apocalypse. I mean, sometimes you you look at these pairings when you open up the episode. And I'm like, how is this going to go? But then you <laughs> you guys talk about it. And that episode was so good. I really, really enjoyed that episode. Um, and it's funny you mentioned both Daniel and Carmelita because I, I'm – 100% positive about this. I'm pretty sure that Daniel and Carmelita did an episode on Cobweb, Daniel's podcast, on The Hunger. That's a funny connection. Yeah. They they did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, they absolutely, they absolutely did. Um, and it was a great, great episode because um, I hadn't seen The Hunger. I think that was the reason why I actually watched The Hunger for the first time was after listening to that show because they were sort of going into sort of the very um, gothic vampirism of it all, which it absolutely is, um, which I can't wait to dig into. So I only had seen The Hunger recently and kind of fell in love with it, um, purely from the fact that it is a post-punk um, the perf perfume commercial. Um, <laughs> and kind of watching it this time around for this show, I noticed a whole bunch of other things as well. So it was, um, no, I really do enjoy this movie. And the fact that they did actually do an episode on The Hunger, which is great. And definitely check that episode out as well. Yes, yes. Uh, and it was funny because you can't answer my first questions here was, have you seen The Hunger before? So you have seen it before this viewing, but it sounds like you had not seen it that long ago. So. No, no, I hadn't. It was um, Tony Scott. My fandom for Tony Scott's only happened in the, like the last four years because he had always been a director that I never connected his movies together. So when you kind of um, watch a movie, you're like, oh, wait, Crimson Tide, Top Gun, um, uh, Man on Fire, Deja Vu. I hadn't quite connected them all together quite yet. Not like um, his brother. Um, and it was kind of when you go, oh, wait. All these Denzel movies I like are actually by the same guy. Oh, okay, this met and it clicked in my head. I went, actually, you know what? I'm a real big uh, Tony Scott fan. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! That I'm glad you're here. Yes, <laughs> it's funny because you keep you keep answering my questions before I ask them. Because my next question oh. is, what are your feelings on Tony Scott? So <laughs> you're already you're reading my mind. It's perfect. Uh, it's funny. Yeah, you mentioned like Tony Scott. Some people might have a problem connecting his filmography as like these are all by the same guy because it it's a very long spanning career from like 83 to 2010 and it's he worked in so many different types of movies like Ridley Scott also was known for this where Ridley Scott has uh, of course kind of made his name in sci-fi but he's done basically every genre at this point um Tony Scott really known for action but I mean at the hunger is Kind of the the hunger is like the weird not exception, but the kind of the standout or I don't know what to call it, the, not the black sheep, but it's it's very different amongst his filmography because it's his only horror movie. It's a very like sexual, sensual movie, which of course he had the some sex scenes later on, like se some sexual things, but nothing like at the level of the hunger. So it's it just feels very different for him but still very much tony scott because of the style is there from like the the get-go it really is um yeah because tony scott as you said is definitely known for his style i think and his action more than anything else i don't think without tony scott you would ever get something like bay or con air or these kind of grandiose 90s action movies where it is all about kind of either slowing down the action or speeding it up which is all through through the hunger um, watching it this time around, I think I noticed um, how similar it was to a little bit of early Ridley. Um, not in the sense that they're completely copying each other, but you can tell 
because didn't they work didn't they have their own advertising company where they were making ads because they made like about six thousand ads before they even got into <laughs> movies yes um, they did. i'm glad you brought that up they uh they had this very successful uh ad agency making a lot of commercials um and yeah that's where they both got their start so yes and so i think you can kind of see the similar some similarities between the two especially if you put like Blade Runner right next to The Hunger. They are completely different movies, but there's kind of that seed of this very kind of um, Scott style. And then they kind of just completely diverged into completely different directions with um, Ridley Scott almost turning into a journeyman um, and Scott kind of turning into, um, I don't know if auteur is the right word because he doesn't really write any of his work, but he has such a signature style that he can kind of almost turn any any. Uh, movie into a Tony Scott movie, if that makes any sense. Oh, that makes perfect sense. It's one of the reasons I love him as a director. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's not exactly an auteur, but he's definitely got one of those styles that would just be like, well, this Quentin Tarantino movie is now a Tony Scott movie, or this um, this movie is now a Tony Scott movie, this kind of time travel movie. So he's he will always put his stamp on whatever he is is doing. Um, and that's kind of why I like him as well and kind of have gone from Ridley over to, um, to the Tony camp. Um, and, and yeah, and I, so I think you can kind of see them starting to go their own ways when you look at Blade, if you put Blade Runner and you put The Hunger next to each other, you can kind of see where their interests actually lie. But at the core, there's a very similar, um, style happening between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, uh, Tony Scott even mentioned, I was obviously reading and, listening to all the stuff about The Hunger specifically and how he was very influenced by what Ridley did on Blade Runner, which is oh, yeah. pretty clear from, you can tell like just how they shoot the lighting, how things, how the lighting comes in through, you know, uh, it windows into rooms and blinds and th you know, things like that, the oh. striking kind of lighting where it's like a normal, it's so dramatic, you know, for, like, it's just trying to light like a doctor's office in The Hunger and it's this beautiful looking light coming in from the windows. And yeah, it's so you could see a lot of that between Blade Runner and The Hunger because, I mean, Ridley's his older brother. Of course, he's influenced by him. And I, I saw something that was so, I think cute's the only way to call it. It's kind of adorable that Tony Scott said that his favorite movie of all time is Blade Runner. And he said, <laughs> not just because, not because my my brother directed it, because it's, uh, you know, he, he loves how it looks. He thinks it's so amazing looking. He sees so much of stuff that Ridley likes and uh, I saw like a lot of influence from their home life because they grew up in like northern England where it rained all the time <laughs> and yes, uh you know industrial and yeah <laughs> raining all the time in Blade Runner so he just saw so much of Ridley in Blade Runner and I thought that was kind of uh very sweet that he loves his brother's movie that much so. I think it is sweet and I kind of I maybe I'm putting my own um relationship with my sort of brother and sister that um you and I we, I can just imagine looking at it going Son of a bitch! I need to beat this somehow. Because um, he, <laughs> but they were, but they apparently were very, very close um, siblings, which is very sweet. And the fact that he just saw Blade Runner and went, "Oh, my brother made a really good movie. That's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely. From everything I've read, they're very close for their whole lives, but still have that competitive nature that I think mm. brothers specifically have, siblings yes. and brothers really, because. Tony got kind of left behind at this agency because, you know, they had other famous directors in there um, and Ridley and they all all these guys got um, directing jobs before Tony did. So Tony's kind of like mm. the guy who's waiting for his shot. And um, it took a while to get there for him. And he was getting very kind of, uh, <laughs> I think, upset, anxious. Um, and yeah, so it was there was definitely a thing of like, oh, Ridley got a shot. I want to get my shot. You know, it's very like 
competitive, but still never, you know, never hateful or anything. Just like he just was pushing him to to get out there. So yeah, yes, because um, the hunger wasn't a huge success when it came out. That wouldn't happen till Top Gun, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, the hunger did not do well. Yeah. Uh, critically panned. Uh, I was going to mention this later. It it cost about ten million. It only made about ten million. So uh, yep, broke even and yeah. did not did not do anything to shake anything up you know very much very much a cult movie uh afterwards but yeah definitely didn't do anything to like really boost his career no and i think that sort of happened to him his whole career i mean yes he made top gun but because top gun was so copied um and i think he did hit definitely hits but i don't think even top gun at the time was seen as a game changer until many years later because i think it was just more of every other producer and director saw that and goes oh that is how you do action we will do that from now on so i think he didn't always get his due and i think unfortunately happened until, until he passed away um that people kind of went looked at his filmography and went oh hang on there's actually really strong links here there's not just this dis- disparate um kind of um these disparate movies there's actually a common thread of style and how he crafted all his movies yeah, exactly. I feel like there was a real value, like reevaluation after he passed away, which is always kind of unfortunate that it happens to someone after they aren't around to appreciate people, re, you know, appreciating their career. I was feel bad. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, you know, but uh, yeah, I've been a fan since uh, I think I mentioned this in, in like the opening of that I'm going to do that. Uh, I've been a fan since I would say like the double whammy that really got me was uh, Man on Fire and a year after Domino, which I know Domino is oh. not like a very popular uh pick but i love domino and uh love man on fire and true romance was either right before right in there too um mostly that was mostly because of tarantino that wasn't mostly because of tony scott but um yeah i mean his style changes so much around that time and i've been a fan since then i remember going around that was like that brief brief time i talked about where i was in film school (laughs) and i go around trying to tell people about like how much i enjoy tony scott and nobody else was really on board they were like what i mean it's like you know it's like the guy had his top gun yeah You sure you, sure, you sure you don't mean um, Ridley? <laughs> yeah, they're like, Ridley? No, I'm like, guys, you got to see Man on Fire and Domino. They're so, you know, there's so much crazy style going on in those movies. I'm I'm a big style person at heart. Like, I, I like De Palma and Tony Scott and, you know, just guys who have, like, tons of style in their movie. That's where I'm really, it's, where, it's like, I know people get kind of, like, stuck on that where they kind of think, oh, these guys are style over substance. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm here to see a movie. I want to see, like, somebody put some style into it so. no i am too which is kind of what strange that it took so long to click on to tony because he's always been there i mean top gun um though i only saw true romance like a couple of weeks ago because i wanted to compare it to natural born killers um because it was two directors taking on quentin tarantino and how tony kept very much the quentin tarantino-esque of it and then oliver stone just went uh no this is an oliver stone movie and i will make it an oliver stone movie um and because with my partner who is the one of the biggest Denzel uh, Washington fans you will ever meet um <laughs> it's not like these movies weren't in my house like I've seen Deja Vu like 10 times I've seen um that's uh, surprised I haven't seen Man on Fire which surprises me um oh, and you said watch that yeah it's um it's just like he's always kind of been there and so when I finally went and I think it was actually, um, and even like um, un, un, unstop- the Unstoppable, which this is uh, podcast's name after, um, <laughs> it was like, oh, that was really, really good. And of course, I thought, oh, it was because I really liked Denzel and Chris Pine. And then when I rewatched it, I'm like, no, it's because I really liked how um, 
how, how Scott directed it. It's yeah. So it just, it t- did take me a while and I'm not entirely sure why, but now when I watch his movies, all I can see is the style and I love them more because yeah, I am also a huge um, De Palma girl as well um, because I like the fact that he will always shoot something in the most, not in, in the most interesting way, no matter how much money it is going to cost, no matter how, ridiculous it may seem to put the camera and move the camera i really like just love how um he will always always and i think scott does it goes okay what is the most interesting way to make this shot i mean mm-hmm. yeah we're, we're in a waiting room for about feels like 10 minutes of the movie with um david bowie and yet it is the most interesting and vibrant scene that kind of feels the most quickest moving of the whole movie because of what it's actually doing and what it's saying so he just didn't put a slow way, an, an aging man in a, in a waiting room, he goes, okay, <laughs> what, how can I make this interesting? How can I make this vibrant? How can I make this pop? And he does. <laughs> Exa- yes, exactly. I really was like folks on that team for me in particular, particular, because I was just thinking like, this should be in a lot of other people's hands. This could be so simple and so drab looking, <laughs> but it looks yes. so striking and dramatic because Tony Scott goes out of his way to make it look that way. And I love that. Like everything looks I mean, The Hunger looks amazing. Like, I mean, it, uh, most of the movies look amazing. But it's like, this one, I think, more almost more than anything, and I think because it's his first movie, it really mm. has that look of, yeah, this could turn into, like, you kind of set a perfume commercial at any moment. Uh, <laughs> like, there's <laughs> scenes with striking lighting and billowing curtains and, you know, all this stuff. And urban profile, I mean, what else? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's a perfume commercial. <laughs> exactly. It's it very, and I don't mind that at all. I think critics had a real problem with that at the time. They're like, oh, this just looks like, an elaborate commercial, I, you know, I just like, it looks incredible. What are you talking about? So um, I think this is the most influenced by his commercial work for sure. Like he knows in a commercial, you've got 30 seconds, a minute to make something to hit somebody. It's got, it's got to look great, you know? And then, so he just knows to make every shot, every scene look fantastic. And um, I just love that about him. And um, to go back a little bit, cause I don't think I even mentioned about how this is actually one of the, newer Tony Scott watches for me. I did not see this movie until last October, like during, oh, you know, wow. kind of Halloween horror watches. And, yeah. and, uh, cause it kind of sits outside of Tony Scott's filmography. It almost feels like a separate, like, cause it's before Top Gun and it's so different than anything else he did. And I had a, for, for a long time, I didn't even like associate it with his filmography in a weird way. I'm like, Oh yeah, the hunger, the vampire movie Tony Scott did that everyone kind of forgets about it. Um, but I watched it, yeah, so October, and I loved it. I was, like, right from right off the bat, to talk more about the movie, like, that Bauhaus uh, opening, the performance, the band yes. there. So, so striking, so stylish. Like, talk about that. That feels like, really, he's, like, I'm using my commercials to, like, grab you instantly and, like, hit you right off the bat. It's, like, so striking, so, so stylish. Um, I love that they're singing a song that apparently was called Bella Lugosi in a vampire movie. Yes. Um, so that for right off the bat, I was like, oh, I like, like this movie. And now I watched it again just today with, uh, Tony Scott's commentary and Susan Sarandon was on the commentary too. Mm. So now I've watched it, I think three times in like six months <laughs> and it's quickly moved out to be one of my favorite Tony Scott movies. No, I think it'd be, it, I always was thinking when I was watching it uh, a few days ago was that if this had been a hit, where would his, where would have his career have gone? Because he makes this, it breaks even it is a blip on critics whatever and it's sort of it's slowly going to turn into a cult movie so he's sort of sitting there okay if i'm going to be if i'm going to be a filmmaker where do i go and then he gets gets the chance to make top gun and i think he kind of learned 
that he had to play well with producers. And then when you did Brockheimer did Top Gun or was yes, it? Yes, uh, it's a yeah. Brockheimer Simpson production. Brock, and I'm pretty yeah. sure they saw that he had style and they were like, yes. this guy can do something. So let's yes. give him a shot. And yeah, we'll get this guy and we can get him cheap and he <laughs> might probably do what we say, which is what I think happened. What, what from what I've read happened with Top Gun and Top Gun was the biggest hit of one of the big hits of, hits of the 80s and changed how you shot action and or not action or shot a blockbuster and um and so i think that's kind of where his career went because they because he thought oh top gun is what i do it's not the hunger so if he was going to make these weird expressionist um almost german expressionist um styled suspiria-esque kind of european styled movies it would have been fascinating to see where would he have gone would he have become more of a brian de palma kind of thriller director or something like that instead of being even though i'm not complaining about where he went because i love those movies but it's just so interesting to sort of see if this had actually caught the public's attention um would his career be completely different from what the tony scott we got yeah that's a that's a great point like if this had been a hit how would that have changed things because like mm -hmm. we said he never really goes back to anything quite like this i mean mm -hmm. style wise can look like this but story-wise and the vibe and everything it's it's kind of unique it's on it sits upon it sits on its own it's in his filmography honestly so uh that would have been fascinating i don't know like i do love the tony scott that came after obviously but uh now you got me thinking like what the possibilities were. so um yeah it's so it's strange for him it's not it's definitely not like a mainstream crowd pleaser for the most part I, as he would go on to make quite often in his career um i love on the commentary listen to tony scott says that the critics call it artsy esoteric self-indulgent and tony scott says and they were right but he didn't care <laughs> he was like yeah that's what i was he's like i, I don't mind I, that's kind of what i was going for so no it is all that it is a very self-indulgent movie i mean this is a guy that's pulling from um german silent cinema a lot of the time i mean this is a, a thing with bauhaus where you can't get more post-punk punk punk, po uh, punk or post-punk um kind of band and they're singing a song called Bella Lugosi I mean that and that scene where he's just kind of in front of the chicken wire and singing and you have these shots of and plus it's got David Bowie in it to be to begin with and Catherine Deneuve so you are definitely pulling from this very specific artsy um pool of alternative music even though I don't the Bowie wasn't alternative by that stage but he is the guy who kind of went oh you can do this over here and be weird and make art um from his earlier career so and it's yeah so i can yes the he's the critics were absolutely right <laughs> and he was but he was making that movie and i don't think he's ever trying to hide it he's like no i'm making my first student this is my student movie but i've already had so much experience as a director so i know exactly how to make it and i know exactly how to make it on budget and um so yeah and it's an amazing movie because of it <laughs> yes yes i agree um and it's funny because you kind of mentioned like where would his career gone if this had been a success and it's funny how much i think that he says he still really likes this movie um and is really proud of it but it's funny because uh, he says looking back that nowadays if he had made the same story or you know when this i think the commentaries from 2004 so man on fire time mm. and uh he says he might have gone ahead and made it more realistic feeling and gritty it's very surreal it's a mm. sur it's a very kind of dreamlike surreal type movie um which again he doesn't really do later on but um so it would have been very different if older tony scott had done this i don't and i i like the, the movie that it is i kind of like that it's this weird um ethereal dreamlike you know all these weird things 
I think it works for the movie that they're telling, honestly, because you're kind of kind of like you're falling under the spell, which is kind of the whole it's Catherine Renouve is just everyone's falling in love with her and turning to vampires, you know, and uh, it's this whole this whole thing. Um, and we have to talk about that. This might be one of the most attractive casts of like the bleeds. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Um, I keep writing in my notes. How attractive is Susan Sarandon? Holy, like, she's always been a beautiful woman, but I don't think I've ever seen her this sexy. She's, like, all muscle, and her hair is perfect, and she's got that I don't give a fuck vibe. Um, and it's, I, yeah, and Bowie is beautiful. Oh, my, everyone is really ethereal in this, and that's kind of, I love it, going back to the whole, it is very surreal, it is very dreamlike. And, yeah, those three are just insanely beautiful so um which i think is kind of thing he took away from the whole vampire thing it's not the fact that you will live forever is that there's the promise of being beautiful forever um and that's kind of what i love about the movie just because you're just watching um like there's a story of in the original script susan sarandon was meant to be meant uh catherine Deneuve was uh, getting susan sarandon drunk so she could sleep with her mm-hmm. and susan sarandon just turned around and goes uh yeah no one this is Catherine Deneuve um no one needs to be drunk regardless of your of your gender um <laughs> that that's so funny because that was one of my favorite moments from her on the commentary was when was when she says that because she brings it up there too about how it's she they want to told you to get her drunk and she's like turns she's like I, she says to Tony or somebody she's like who needs to get drunk to go to bed with Catherine Deneuve like and then they came off the whole spilling wine thing and yeah, yeah. it's like yeah who who needs that to to go to bed with her like um I thought that was so funny the way she the way she told that story yeah it's like yeah I I'm I'm a straight lady but I mean come on have you seen Catherine Deneuve over there and <laughs> Catherine Deneuve was still in her what her 40s in that stage I think so holy yeah. yeah she is I mean she's still phenomenally beautiful um if there's a movie she was in a couple of years ago called truth and she is still just this amazing commanding gorgeous presence on screen um so yeah the fact that Catherine Jennifer had to get someone drunk to sleep with her I would not have bought at all um <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love how they handled it and I love how it is all about um lust and all about beauty and kind of fits into that dreamy surreal thing of the movie perfectly because it's not about the necessarily these deep connections people are having um it is about this kind of power play between three people or more but only between uh Sarandon and Deneuve because poor Bowie doesn't see it coming um (laughs) one of my one of my oh sorry I didn't cut you off sorry oh yeah yeah I was just gonna ramble on about how much I love Catherine Deneuve that's listen fair (laughs) enough we all do uh I was gonna say the one one of my minor like complaints about the movie is I do wish there was more Bowie. I mean, obviously that's the story, but I was sad that he's gone by the 30 minute mark. I, yeah. I He's pretty quickly out of the movie, um, which is kind of like, oh no, I, you know, we all want more Bowie, but I mean, obviously that's the story they're telling, but I was like, oh no. And um, it's you bring up a good point about how it's like the idea of people want eternal youth because uh, the, the whole thing that goes bad for Bowie is that he finds out, you know, Catherine Renouf Miriam, uh, character Miriam promised him you'll live forever, but that didn't mean eternal youth. I mean, eternal life, which is like, do you really want to live forever? Um, if you're going to be eternally really, really old, <laughs> you know, if you're like 110 yes. years old, it's like, I don't think you want to live forever. Is everyone wants to live forever as like a 20, 30 year old, you know, they don't want to live forever as a hundred year old person. <laughs> no. And I love how, um, his age 
and his beauty is connected to how Deneuve feels about him at any given moment because as soon as you can kind of tell he starts aging she starts checking out I mean yes mm-hmm. when he does pass away when he does it goes out of the movie um she does grieve but I don't I think you can tell that she's already going well I've been with this guy for 300 years I'm getting <laughs> a little tired of it yeah. um I need someone else and then he starts instantly aging um and it's kind of like well i the vampirism is not necessarily just about blood it's about this connection people have to denerve um and so as soon as she's like mm, nah i'm sorry bowie i'm on board he just <laughs> ages up to like 103 very very quickly <laughs> yes yeah it's like he's like done at that point and she's kind of she still seems sad that he's you know gonna be kind of put away with the rest of her uh, former loves in the attic, which I thought was interesting that she's just storing away all her former lovers up in the <laughs> attic in coffins. But she still seems kind of sad. She's like, well, I'll miss you. You were a good one. <laughs> You're a good one, but it's time. To, yeah, she's she's still sad and she still mourns, but I all got this distinct from impression. I'm like going, oh, you're, you're already... She doesn't... Well, she doesn't eye off Susan Sarandon before this happens. This happens afterward, but mm-hmm. you can tell she's already going, I'm ready to move on. Right, and apparently I didn't get this from the movie, which mm. uh, another one of my kind of complaints is the, the the story is not super clear, I think, on some things. like Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I did not get the first time that, that Bowie was going to live forever, but he was getting old. He was getting older, but he was going to keep living. I just thought he was going to pass away. That wasn't super clear. I don't think it was explicitly said. Um, and I didn't realize that also... Catherine Neuve's character apparently uh, is kind of grooming Alice, who's like a young girl that John and Miriam, Dare Bowie and Catherine Neuve are kind of mm. teaching music to. They're tutoring her music. And yeah. uh, Catherine Neuve's like grooming her when she comes of age to be like her next, you know, lover, companion, whatever. Yes. Um, which I did not get the first time either. So, yes, uh, I think Tony Scott got a little more focused on you know how good it looked and the vibe and the style than being super clear about the story beats i mean uh but it's one of those things when you kind of finish you're like that was great but you're like wait it's like did this happen why this happened this happened but you know i i I think i've said before multiple times i've kind of gotten the point with movies where plot has become somewhat secondary over i'm more for like performances and style and how it looks and how it feels than the story beats, but the story is a little bit of a mess. I had to pick some things up Wikipedia after the first time. <laughs> no, it is because I think there, I mean, you can easily compare it to like an Italian horror movie from yes. the yeah. 1670s <laughs> where your plot does not matter. Um, because I remember when the Suspiria remake came out, and so everyone was like, Oh, should I see this movie? And then I had a work colleague goes, Okay, so how is it different from the first one? And what is the actual first one about? And I just went, Suspiria has no plot. I mean, the remake <laughs> has all the plot, which is why it is different from the first one. But the 1975, eight, oh, getting all the date wrong. 77, I think. 77, yeah. Range, for sure. Yeah, right range. Uh, the 77 Siber- um, Suspiria has no plot. It is about a belly skull with witches. That's it. And it right. is all about the mood and feeling that um, Argento wants to put across. I think this is very true for The Hunger, but I think that there is kind of this element of a cohesive story trying to be there and Tony Scott not necessarily caring about it. Because, yeah, there is definite stages. There is the relationship between Catherine Deneur and David Bowie, uh, John and Miriam, and then, of course, you've got this young um, uh, young girl, Alice, who's kind of about to reach kind of 
puberty or kind of full teenager. And you, if, unless you catch David Bowie questioning Catherine about, are you going to swap, swap me with Alice? Um, you don't know why she's there except to maybe be a victim. Um, and then, of course, um, the whole thing with Susan Sarandon kicks in and her kind of thing is actually very plot heavy. Uh, her relationships with her part, with Clifton Young, um, her, the fact that she's a scientist, that's all kind of plot there. So I got the sneaking susp suspicion that there was a movie with a very strong, with a plot. And Tony Scott was just like, can we just have more curtains? <laughs> <laughs> I need more billowing curtains. <laughs> I need more billowing curtains. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah i don't know if you know i don't think he wanted to get bogged down in so many story beats like you could still get all this like you look back and you're like okay i see that i just may have missed it because maybe you're too busy being blown away by Catherine Hoover, david bowie who knows you know i mean that's what happened to me the first time where i was just yes. like everyone is beautiful in this movie there's a um, lot of beauty on screen so if you're not catching plot points or because i completely missed the um <laughs> the alice part the first time i watched it i just oh we killed her now okay well that's okay um yeah, i didn't get that either yeah because you're just like staring at the, the all this beauty on screen going they are very very beautiful people <laughs> And they are. They really are. And before yeah. I get to ask you, because I know you're much more of a reader than I am. So have you ever read – this is based on a novel by a guy named Whitley Strieber, Stryber, mm -hmm. I believe. Uh, have you ever read the novel this is based on? No, I haven't. I didn't actually realize there was a book until I was reading about the moving where it came from, which is probably why you can sort of see the plot actually happening in the in the movie. Um, but no, <laughs> I have not read I have not read this particular vampire book yet. Okay. I was just very curious what the differences were because I – didn't hear much about that when I was doing all my kind of reading. Um, the one thing I know they did change, and this is more of like a producer thing mm. than Tony Scott or anybody else, was the the ending. So um, to, <laughs> if anyone doesn't know, basically uh, uh, Catherine Renouve and Susan Sarandon are together, and Susan Sarandon decides she does not want to kind of have this lifestyle and mm. kills herself. And there's like a transference of blood between her and Catherine Renouve and... Uh, they, she starts to age, and all her all her former lovers come back and kind of <laughs> push her over this balcony, and she falls and very dramatically and and dies finally. And then, so basically, the idea was to close this circle. So Catherine Neuve was done. Um, I think all her lovers could finally rest. Uh, that was the mm. whole idea. Soon Sarandon ends up at the very end of the movie. She, you find out she's still alive. That was all a producer thing where they were like, "Hey, we want we want them to make a sequel. Can you keep Soon Sarandon alive?" And she basically becomes the the new Catherine Deneuve, and that would have been the sequel, but of course the movie didn't do well, so they never did yeah. that. But that was all a studio note because they just want to make a sequel out of it. I kind of like the idea of they had closed the circle because then that's what Susan Randy was trying to do, and then they're like, no, 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 you, you, she's still alive, even though that doesn't make much sense either, but they just wanted a, a sequel apparently. But Tony Scott apparently did not want that either. So I yeah, This makes sense because having her suddenly alive doesn't make any sense within the movie because it's pretty thinks she's like, no, I don't want, um, I don't want this lifestyle. I don't want anything to do with this is all wrong. Um, and then she kills herself and then you find, oh no, she's still alive. I actually kind of like it because I kind of see it as um, Susan Sarandon taking all her power back because if she is going to live this lifestyle, she is going to have to be, almost a familiar for um, Catherine Deneuve. Mm -hmm. And so she's going to be kind of at her whim. And when Catherine Deneuve wants someone else, she's going to, she's just going to age and then be put in a box and um, not kind of live this kind of life of torment um, or 
be killed or kind of whatever. Um, but she kind of takes her power back and is like, okay, no. So yes, I am a vampire, but now I get to kind of live my life, which is kind of, you can see her fighting for, for the most of the movie. Um, but that could be me just reading into it on this, on this watch. <laughs> no, I, I, I like your take of it. Cause if it has to end up the way that it does, then mm. that's the take that I would like to take from it as well. So, yes. so yes, I like, I like your reading of it. That is good that she's kind of, taking her her life back and everything and won't be just Catherine news kind of servant and, and you know she made the choice to she tried to do the right i guess you'd say it's the right thing or at least the, you know and then get out yes. of it and, uh and yeah no i like i like your reading of it so um and one thing i was gonna say uh just about the kind of the cast the leads again is that and i don't know where i read or heard this but i do find this really i thought i thought this too that Catherine anoub and david bowie both have this look of people who were like otherworldly like they're they're beautiful people but they look like they you couldn't imagine them out like at a grocery store or you know amongst normal people no. while and it works because soon sarandon comes in and i feel like she is while still being very beautiful looks like a normal person you could see on the street but and kind of comes into their world and and i just was like yeah that's right because bowie and Danube are just like very striking especially there bowie he always has looked to me like a man who came from another planet and it's just like how are you amongst normal humans like it doesn't make sense so i um, know you, the whole when you watch him like yes you are sticky sticky zadas you are not human at all because no <laughs> you are not you don't act you know you went in the, in the 70s when he did nothing but cocaine and ate, ate drink milk and ate peppers it was just this kind of <laughs> you're not you're not normal um and i love him for it um and again Kath, again Catherine Deneuve, she is not a person who goes to the, to the supermarket she is not the <laughs> She just kind of lays on a on a on a Shanae's lounge and just bees. Um, <laughs> she's just she is just who she is. Um, and you're right because I think there's a very muscular nature to Susan Sarandon and the way her hair is kind of cut and the fact that she feels like she is mostly muscle in this movie um, kind of makes her more grounded and more human. And what I love about her is that she takes all the kind of she wants to be human she doesn't necessarily want to be a vampire but then she has to i think she always saw it as like someone who was an addict now and i don't think this was portrayed particularly well in the movie but i see her kind of changing especially um her relationship with clifton young she um is very kind of she doesn't like being confined and he wants to put her in a very particular relationship he wants to be the man and save her um and she's constantly fighting back against this to the point where i guess if you're um well, well spoilers she does in fact kill clifton young in this amazing scene where he's trying to save her he's trying to be the guy who comes in sees there's a dangerous situation and completely and utterly um wants, is going to save the day and susan sarandon in a fit of don't save me or in a fit of I'm trying to fight what is what I'm wanting kills him and drinks his blood and then she's like oh no I am now a vampire so it but it's this great moment of you're not coming in to save the day it's going to be Susan Sarandon who's going to come in and take control of the situation again which is probably why I keep seeing it as someone as Susan taking the power back yes that's actually that's a great point because Susan Sarandon says as much I think on the commentary that she loved the idea that this is the question she thought it was asking was, would you want to live forever if you're an addict, if you have some mm. addiction? Um, and yeah, it's it's a good question because it's it's like the trade-off, is it like, is it worth that? Um, kind of reminds me of another movie that I absolutely love called The Addiction by Abel Ferrara. 
Um, yeah, I still need to see this. Yeah, it's so good. Now I'm pairing up a double feature in my head of these two movies because that whole movie just shows it's much uh, like more raw and ugly than The Hunger. In but it's all about uh, a woman getting turned into a vampire and how it it's really like a metaphor for like drug addiction. And this is a much um, uh, more, I would say, uh, <laughs> it's more thinly veiled than the the addiction. Uh, like the hunger is kind of coming from a different angle, but um, that is the question. I think that it is trying to ask. It's like, do you want to live forever? If well, two things: you want to live forever if you're addicted to something, and if you're going to be uh, turned into a hundred year old person. It's like, is it worth it? It's like I don't think it would be. <laughs> no, I think it's very much asking those questions. I think it's asking um, the question of, do you want to live forever if you're not going to be young and beautiful? Um, do, you, do you are you going to be old and decrepit and still live forever? I think is it worth it? Um, and I think the movie's answer is like, oh no no, um, <laughs> no I I kept having bliss in the back of my head, which only came out two years ago. Now I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but this young woman who is turned into a vampire on a night out and, um, it's a bit, again, very much a, an addiction movie and also her just succumbing to the, when you're trying to fight against an addiction, how hard it is. And then kind of the release that movie feels when she's just like, you know what? I am going full hog on this vampire thing. Um, (laughs) and, um, I wouldn't have, I would not have been surprised if Joe Bigos had seen The Hunger at some point. It just, yeah, it felt very, very similar. Yes. And actually it's funny because Bliss also, or Addiction reminded me of Bliss. I saw Bliss first. And yes. so there's a triple feature for you, The Hunger, Bliss, and Addiction. <laughs> like, <laughs> all about how uh, how terrible it could be to be a vampire if there's this horrible addiction to uh, to blood. Um, and let me see. So, and could we talk about the cast so much? And that, that, this will come up a lot on this podcast by Tony Scott, but... Tony Scott is amazing at casting people (laughs) because beyond the three leads, he brings in Dan Hedaya, such a a good actor for basically two scenes. It's a very small role, but Tony Scott was like, he brought him, they were, they filmed this in England. They wanted to do New York, but they couldn't afford to do it in New York. So they shot in England. It's London as New York. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) London, Dublin is New York. So he, he only brought over a few actors from America that he wanted Mm. specifically. And Dan Hedaya was one of them. And I thought that was so interesting that he specifically, when I was waiting to get him, because it's two scenes, you probably could have gotten anybody, but he wanted Dan Hedaya specifically. And then even down to, I love this story down to, there's a scene where Susan Sarandon goes to a phone booth and she kind of gets hassled by these two guys who are Mm. played by, uh, two actors who go on to be much more famous after this movie, John Pankow and Willem Dafoe. Uh, yes. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I, Scott's going to casting because these are minor roles. These guys have one line apiece, you know, mm. and uh, Tony Scott even said he had to fight for Willem Dafoe because the he's studio, like in two seconds. <laughs> yeah. It's like the studio thought he looked, and I quote, too strange. They thought <laughs> they thought Willem Dafoe looked too weird. And Tony Scott's mm. like, no, I, I think he's good. I like the look. It's like, because he has a look of like somebody who could fit in with Catherine Neuve and David Bowie. It's kind of like, he's he's unique. I, <laughs> I say unique looking. That's not supposed to be an, a, a slight to Willem Dafoe, but he's kind of got that otherworldly look to him. It's not like a, uh, it's a unique look. So he does kind of, you might think like, is this guy also a vampire? But um, I just thought it was so funny that Tony Scott fights for the cast down to people with one line, you know? It's just so good. <laughs> No, it is. And when Dane Hedaya shows up, he's great in it, but he feels so out of place in the best way. It's like this kind of intruding force coming into Catherine Deneuve's house that does not belong, this this police officer who's asking questions. 
And he's so Dan Hedaya in this. And he's got like a haircut that looks like it's out of, um, oh, what's Lynch's first movie? Um, uh, Razorhead. Razorhead. He's got a Razorhead hair. <laughs> and he's just kind of coming up. And he's, Catherine Deneuve's constantly walking upstairs or something whenever she's talking to him. So he's having to kind of look up at her. And he feels like such an odd thing in this house. And I love it because he's he shouldn't be in this house. Like everything screams about him like, you do not belong anywhere in right. this in Catherine Deneuve's world. And she is constantly just trying to get away from him. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Um, and yeah, Willem Dafoe has got, gives great face. Um, he's got the most, he's got the most amazing face and a brilliant actor, but to sort of see him pop up, it is such to great effect because Susan's Randall's on the phone. She's freaking out. She doesn't know what's happening to her. And to have this kind of face turn around and suddenly face you, that's William Defoe. It's such an effective moment. More the fact that you're just like, going, oh, shit, it's Defoe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love those moments. It's like you look back and it's like they weren't even famous here. Like, oh, shit, that's William Defoe. Look at that. Yeah. And then the other guy shows up, you're like, is that that guy from that thing? Because <laughs> I never know Jan, John Pankow's name. He's always, he's sort of a that guy. And um, I'm like, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> yeah, he, he's one of those. I, I kind of. I didn't realize till later on. I was like, oh, he's also, he became more famous after this too. And they, apparently him and Willem Dafoe were both in To Live and Die in LA together a couple of years after this, a William Freakin movie. Um, oh, I have seen that. I need to watch this. Yes, they are. Um, <laughs> yeah, because he was one of the friends that are mad about you. And um, yeah, he is in To Live and Die in LA, which I need to rewatch that because com- my memory of that is gone. <laughs> <laughs> I need to rewatch too. I saw it the first time like, last year. <laughs> It was incredible. Yeah. I was like, I need to watch this movie again. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's all style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and it's going to come up, I think, a lot. We're talking to Tony Scott about casting because it's so many movies. I'm thinking of like True Romance, Crimson Tide. Uh, I mean, I could name up those are two on my head. Like, where the, everybody in the cast is like somebody and they're like perfect for their part. You know, it's like down to minor roles. Um, and it starts it starts here, really. You can see it right from the beginning. So um, I just thought that was very, very interesting. Um, yeah, and the way he kind of uses his actors as movie stars, which I think is especially true of this, um, each um, Bowie, Deneuve, and Sarandon give these movie star performances. They're not necessarily um, completely nuanced, but he knows that he just needs to kind of um, let them light up. And this is how he used absolutely used Cruise. Um, well, I haven't seen Days of Thunder and definitely how he uses um, uh, Denzel Washington is he kind of lets them shine almost. I, I don't can't think of a better word um, um, than that to sort of say, oh, I'm just going to let you be a movie star. I'm just going to let you go and do your do thing. And he did work with a lot of movie stars. He really did. It's crazy. When mm. you look at all the people he's worked with, it's it's mm. insane. I mean, even it's so funny. I'm thinking back to. Uh, True romance when he has Brad Pitt in there. Brad Pitt is not very big yet. You know, he's like the the stoner oh. on the couch. You know, it's like... oh my god, the way he pronounces everything in that movie is my favorite thing. Like, I think I wish I'd seen True Romance when I was younger because I think I would have loved it more. Now I'm watching it, going, "This is a very young man's movie." Um, but that's what I think Quentin Tarantino wrote when he was a young man was those kind of movies. Um, I'm I'm a kind of person who watch more Hateful Eight or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood than I would. Pulp Fiction, even though I know that movie's a masterpiece, I'm much more about his older career. And um, yeah, I was just every single time him and um, oh, the other guy, um, his roommate, are in that movie. It is just freaking brilliant. I love those <laughs> two in that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you bring two romance up as a young man's movie because for someone who loved it as a young man, it's a young man's movie. I think I I'm a little like not nervous to rewatch it for this, but when we get to it, I don't know 
how it's going to hold up. I have not seen it in a, a while. I don't know how long it's been, but um, I was very into it when I was younger. It definitely feels like, you know, a very young Tarantino writing it uh, oh, where, yeah. yeah, it's like, I think he said at the time he wrote it, he never even had a girlfriend yet. And I think you can feel you can that. Tell. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can tell. tell. <laughs> um, there's everything. Yeah, I can't wait to hear your conversation about it because there's a way Christian Slater hits on women that I'm just like, Okay, I'm a cult movie person, but if someone just keeps saying Sunny Tuber at me, I think I'm just going to walk away. It's just, it's not kind of work. Um, and just the way he writes um, uh, uh, the character, uh, her name, uh, Patricia, Ar- Patricia Arquette, I'm just like, yeah, you don't know much about women. There's actually a, a speech <laughs> that is going to be very young Tarantino, which Den- Dennis Hopper gives, and it's a great, he delivers it. But it is very that early stage of when Tarantino's trying to shock you with certain things. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing that conversation just because I think there's a lot to dig into and it's going to be as much about Tarantino that it is about Tony Scott. Yeah, it's hard to separate that one. I mean, it's Tony Scott movie, but, you know, it's very much got Tarantino all over it. And, oh, so over it, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be it's gonna be interesting. I, and that's when I, I absolutely loved it when I was a teenager. I thought it was, like, to me, it was, you know, 10 out of 10. It was a perfect movie. I loved it. I don't think it's going to hold that well, but we will see when we get there. I don't know. I think I think I'll still really like it. I don't know if I will still love it, but I, I don't know. We will see. I uh, I am looking forward to rewatching that one. I think that conversation is going to be pretty interesting. Uh how that goes <laughs> oh brad pitt is just so he's only liking it for like six minutes or a lot but every single time someone comes to the house for directions and he just gives it oh i'm just like yes i love you brad pitt and this <laughs> oh my god you're so awesome <laughs> <laughs> oh he's great i mean yeah it's like down to those little parts it's you've got people oh. that you're like oh shit it's brad pitt um it's it's so good um so okay i think we're kind of i think we can kind of start winding down we don't need to wrap up yet but um so anything that is specific you want to bring up about the hunger that kind of struck you this time or? I think it was sort of more the waiting room scene. Um, mm-hmm. I think really struck me and how sad it is. Um, the, the waiting, because we've mentioned it a couple of times before, and this is when Bowie has started aging. And the whole thing of um, Susan Sarandon is that she's a scientist who may have figured out how to stop the aging process. This is essentially for a disease that affects young children, where they age very quickly and then um, pass away. Um, And so he tries to go see her and she blows him off because she thinks it's another crank kind of patient. So she leaves him in the waiting room for maybe an hour. And just the way, um, and he makes this scene epic because all it literally is, is David Bowie sitting in a room, but the way he makes it so epic uh, and you can see him aging like in Mm -hmm. front of you, like every single time you cut back, he's got even more old man makeup on and um, it's this amazing, sad, and kind of heartbreaking scene because you can see him dying in front of you. And it's just this kind of careless moment of just leave him in the waiting room. He'll eventually go away, not realizing that he's he's um, losing all his youth and he doesn't have that much time left. And it's in a waiting room of all places. <laughs> that, wow. Yeah, that's that's true. And we talked about like how good it looks with Tony Scott, you know, how he lights it and everything. Mm. But yeah, the way Dare Bowie plays it, it's like he's pulling out a clump of his hair mm. and he's just sitting there kind of you're watching him age so so rapidly. And I, I'm glad you brought that back up again because I wanted to mention how I thought how good the old age makeup look it, it is. And it's by Dick Smith. Who's yeah, a famous makeup artist. And I thought he did a great job of the old age makeup. And it's so crucial to 
to that scene and what's happening to David Bowie. And I think Bowie plays it super well. I, I, I don't know if I could say Bowie's like underrated as an actor. I mean, I don't know if he's underrated or just kind of rated just right. But um, I I really love him in movies. I always like watching him act. I always think he's so he's so interesting. I think he is. I think he's rated just right because I always wish he was in more movies. But then I think if he was, he'd ruin it because I think mm-hmm. he, he had a very specific presence and that's how he kind of used it. Like I grew up with Labyrinth. So oh, the Goblin yeah. King was <laughs> just everything. Um, and that was kind of my introduction into into Bowie um, was, was through that. And then I realized, oh, he's done all these albums. Oh, cool. And the man who fell to earth. I think when you've got a director who kind of knows how to use them and he's always used as this alien kind of figure. I think there's a movie uh, made in when he was living in West Germany because he wanted to be in a movie with Marlene Dietrich that I haven't seen it, but from what I've heard, it's not good because he's playing a regular guy in it. I'm like, oh. why would you put Bowie <laughs> as a regular guy? It, no, he's because he's he wasn't. He, um, and watching him in his old man makeup, I suddenly realized – um, I mean, yeah, David Bowie was still 69 when he died, but he was still beautiful. Uh, we never saw uh, David Bowie, because I'm sure he was particularly conscious of how the public viewed him. And so when he probably got sick, he was he was very, very, very private. Um, mm-hmm. And so he was probably very conscious of how he looked to people who he didn't want to know that he was actually dying. And we never, publicly, we never saw Bowie um, age in a way or kind of, um, disintegrate in front of our eyes. He was still Bowie. Um, so to see him in this movie after he's passed away um, is kind of weird because I was like, oh, we never saw Bowie like this. No, we never got to the stage where Bowie was an 85-year-old man um, and you're kind of sort of seeing him wasting away. He was, even when he was recording Darkstar, it was, he was dying and he still kind of kept up this kind of ethereal, I'm going to live forever persona. Um, so no, that was just crept into my head when I was watching it because I was like, Huh, we never got we never got to see this Bowie. He he said he passed away before we got to not that I wanted to see it, but right. <laughs> he was kind of this still this ethereal creature that he was we were never going to see it. It was kind of like this perfect moment of like, well, I'm gonna get to the age where I'm gonna start falling apart. So I I will, even though I'm probably sure he fought against it probably tooth and nail, but right. it's just it, this weird juxtaposition that yeah. I noticed. No, I I love that. It's very interesting, and now it's gonna make me sad when I go back and watch the scene. But uh, <laughs> it's it, it's funny because I I was thinking too when you were talking about that of him and Prince. I feel like we're two mm. guys that were always like they were beyond normal people. You know, it was yes. like these guys came from another planet. They landed here to give us great music, and they left probably too and too soon, way too soon. So um, yes. and we never really saw yes. either one of them age or. I mean, Dave Bowie got a little bit older, but he never, yeah, we never saw him as like a broken old man or anything. And it was just kind of, they were just gone almost, you know, him and Prince were just like gone so soon. It was like, wait, what did they leave? But yeah, it doesn't feel like they're, they're gone. It's so strange. Uh, (laughs) No, that's actually right. Those two, the two guys that could only have been performers because there was no way they could live in normal society um, because they were this, these kind of, um, ethereal creatures who made this amazing music and then yeah both died before their time and yeah because I was looking at photos of him around the year he died and he looks like Bowie there's no indicate yeah he's a little thin but there's no indication of this man is sick mm-hmm. um so he whether he was very very conscious of his um public persona and was like no and because he always was constantly playing a character um 
no, no, I'm going to play the specific character. So it's just, yeah, and to, him to be in a movie about a this ethereal person who suddenly just loses it and then um, ages and ages out of what he wants to be is a, feels weird, especially when you're looking at, oh, I haven't seen Man Who Fell to Earth in decades. I need to watch that movie again. Mm-hmm. Um, but even The Labyrinth, when he is this ethereal goblin king and he will always be this storied figure. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe anyone tried to cast Bowie as a regular man. That's so interesting to me. I'm just thinking no, about like David Bowie just like trying to go to the bank, and it's like, what? This doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's like a, he's like a, he's like a soldier after World War Two or something in West Germany. I'm like going, that no, no, I can't. <laughs> oh well, that, yeah. I uh, that's very interesting. I like that take of it. That's probably what I'm gonna think of now whenever I rewatch this in that that waiting room <laughs> scene. But um, it's so yeah, good. It's so there's no real dialogue in that it's just you just observe him and yeah it's and it's it's falls it's followed up with some more it sets up like these sad scenes where he's trying to get blood to to you know help himself and it's not really yeah. working like he kills that uh rollerblader or attacks him i don't think he kills him yes um and then the it's a sad scene when he goes he's aged so far and then alice the the student he comes can't over actually attack someone yeah yeah, and but, he doesn't want to, but she sees him and doesn't recognize him. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm John's father. She's like, okay, and then just starts playing, and he kills her. And I don't feel like he wants to do that, but he's so desperate to try to live, get his youth back, that he does it. And it's shot. That's a very, like, well-shot scene, I feel it's like. It's a really well-shot scene. Actually, she does. Um, He goes, oh, I'm... No, he doesn't say. He goes, are you John's father? He goes, no, I'm not. He goes, oh, you oh, have the right. same eyes. So, no, she does, and he's... There's an amazing moment because you can kind of feel that he's jealous of her because she's just the, she's a young girl right. and he's never yeah. he's not that and he's got the sneaking suspicion that Catherine Deneuve's gonna replace him with her and he doesn't want to do it because I think he generally likes her but there's this kind of okay you're small enough for me to attack and mm-hmm. weak enough um, but yet I you are the thing that's going to replace me so I need to attack you now there's a few things going on in that scene that I really really love um, and it's all Bowie so. Right. <laughs> Um, it's all on Bowie's um, face and he's completely under makeup with it. And I, I, I love it. I, yeah, the movie does lose a little bit, I think, when Bowie leaves. Um, but it's, I don't know. Yeah, the more I talk about them, I'm like, oh, crap, I do love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it, and I've heard this complaint, I kind of, I can see where people are coming from. It doesn't really ever lose me, but I think the last, especially the last, like, act, last 30, 20, 30 minutes kind of gets a little bit, it uh, does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit, like, I don't know, kind of starts to not fall apart, but it's not as strong as the first two acts, you would, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and once you lose, it's hard, when you lose Bowie, it's like, well, you know, but uh, and th- back that scene when he when he has to kill Alice, you're right, there's so much going on with it. I feel like he doesn't want to do it, but he is a little angry, a little jealous, but he also mm. is sad about it. Uh, there's a lot going on, and it, again, it's just, you kind of have to read into that or just see it on, on Bowie. So, and under a lot of makeup, like it's, you know, so. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that is, that is a very, very heavy makeup. Um, but no, it's done like, you can tell it's makeup, but it's just done really well that you're, cause it's Dick Smith and the man was a, as a, was a genius yeah. when it came to that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, he really was. Um, so yeah. And so, yeah, sorry, I'm jumping back, back and forth here, but that to the last 30 minutes, I, I think people say it kind of falls apart or kind of loses it, but I, I think I'm so into it at that point that it I'm on board and the style's still so good that I'm 
not that upset by it. So. No, it does get very confused, but because I'm sort of all on board with um, mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon doing what she's doing, that I kind of forgive the movie, but it does become very rushed. I mean, the movie's quite paced, which is kind of unusual for a Tony Scott movie, who's going to be known for his pacing. It's very, very fast pacing. And this one movie does, even though it's not that long, does feel like it's take, it takes its time. And then it feels like it's, oh, shit, we have to do all this thing in the last, like, 20 minutes. Um <laughs> Because we need to have a 90-minute runtime, and I've got, like, all this story that I've just been kind of avoiding to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. And I can never be mad at, like, a 90-minute runtime, but it does kind of feel like it jumps, it kind of races a little bit to that ending. Like, because it does feel like it's taking its time for a while, then it's like, you're right, it kind of feels like, oh, we got to wrap up, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah. so... Um... So yeah, a couple things I wanted to mention before I forget, before we fully wrap up. Uh, I <laughs> I felt bad, but Tony Scott laughed about it. But he said that in the commentary that the reviews were so bad for The Hunger that he never he didn't read his reviews again until Man on Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Literally stopped reading reviews about his movies because it was oh, so bad. And he said somebody, uh, like I think it was about The Hunger, uh, that, that um, they told him, don't read the New York Times review. And he said he was in a hotel room. And of course, what's in front of him? They've left the New York Times on a table in his hotel room. Oh, <laughs> and he no. said he walked back and forth. He took a shower. He went to the back. He came back. And he just couldn't. He said it was like a drug. He couldn't He couldn't help himself. And then he, uh, he read it. And it was a terrible review. Um, and he was like, all right, well, I won't read these again. And I, I guess finally Man on Fire was, was good enough that he could come back around. <laughs> but um, I'm sure he got plenty of reviews before that, but that just, I thought that he laughed about it in the commentary. So I'm sure that was fine. But, um, and you can now laugh. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fine. He, he was like, eh. I, I mean, he was making hits. So I don't think he, I think he probably stopped caring about the reviews, you know, once yeah. um, he makes Top Gun, which is like one of the biggest movies of the 80s. So, yes. uh, and it keeps rolling for the most part after that. But, um, and he got the job. So, like I said earlier, he was really, he really wanted to direct a movie, like desperately wanted to direct a movie. And he was getting left behind all these guys he'd worked with for getting movies. His brother, obviously making mm. movies and um, director Alan Parker, who was one of the guys at their commercial firm, um, the producers, we call it named Richard Shepard was the producer of hunger. And he, uh, mm. Alan Parker was his first choice director. Alan Parker turned him down and said, Hey, you should give it to Tony. Like he does really good work. Check out his commercials, give him mm. a shot. So um, that's how he got the shot at this. And it, it did end up paying off because then he got Top Gun. And, you know, like we said, it's it's all it's I mean, he definitely has things along the way after Top Gun that aren't hits. Um, mm, yes. And that aren't critical hits sometimes. But um, he's pretty good for a, long, a while after Top Gun comes out because it is a massive hit. Like, I'll talk about more in the next episode. But Jesus, I looked at the box office for Top Gun and I was even blown away. Like in 1980s dollars, I was like, holy shit, this movie made all that money. <laughs> No, and it really did define about how you make a blockbuster. Like, I think, I don't think you get Michael Bay um, without Top Gun, which for good or for ill. Um, <laughs> I know uh, Mark is a big Bay fan, which I get because I live with a massive Bay fan. Um, but I don't think you get this kind of rapid pacing of a blockbuster unless without Tony Scott. Um, so I think he does get a little bit underappreciated for what he actually does for movies and I am a big blockbuster kid. I always have been. So the bigger the spectacle I'm usually on board for. Um, and yeah, you do not get that without, um, without Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because Michael Bay goes on to make a few movies with uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, who Tony Scott made Top Gun with and a few other things. So yes. there's definitely a connection there. Uh, I, I'm hot and cold on Michael Bay. Like some things I still love and some things I think are 
terrible. So I'm like very up and down on Michael Bay. But the guy knows how to make things look good. I mean, I'll say that. He also had a background in commercials. So uh, yes, he did. I yeah. yeah, I can be hot and cold within the same movie. Like I can hate <laughs> Armageddon. But as soon as they're leaving Bruce Willis on that friggin' thing, I am bawling my eyes out and still do not understand why. Because that is one of the more misogynistic modern movies I've seen. And I'm just like, but if they left press, he sacrificed himself. And I, yeah, I get, I'm like that within one Bay movie. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, they, they can make a joke. Like, sometimes the humor really doesn't work for me in a Michael Bay movie. So, um, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And you know what's crazy? I've never seen Armageddon. I would not be the person to recommend it because I have big <laughs> issues with that movie. But there is the scene where they leave Bruce Willis on the asteroid and it is a very moving moment. And I, I've t- heard. It's funny because I, I know it's in bits and pieces and I feel like somebody, like a kid I went to school with at the time, he was a big hit. I think someone mm. told me the entire plot. Mm. Uh, and I was like, okay, cool. I don't need to see it. But I, I, I have a weird aversion to like end of the world type movies like uh, that. Y- yeah, I can as well. Um, I think me and my partner were watch, watching it and for the first time, and I think I had just seen a John Carpenter movie like right before, and I was almost feeling ill because Bay does not stop the camera moving. I mean, it is just constantly spinning, and I'm like going, I feel dizzy. And then the rest <laughs> of the movie happened, and I got angry, and then I started crying. Um, so it's... Oh. Yeah, so. so that is but that's pretty much me on a Bay movie. Um, I had a relationship end because he took me to Bad Boys Two, and I hated it so much that the relationship pretty oh. much ended after that. It, you know what? I I still love Bad Boys Two, but I get it. <laughs> no, I think I haven't I haven't seen it since. I think I need to go back and watch it because I think the action is great, but I think there was just something. I think them driving through a shanty town. I just went, that's it, and that of course I hadn't seen Jackie Chan Police Story and realized that he completely ripped that off from that. And right. I think I'd be a bit different with it now, but. <laughs> oh, 21-year-old me was not impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Michael Bay does that for a few people. I think he owes Tony Scott uh, uh, some debt, too, because I think he it's definitely just... was heavily influenced by Tony Scott. So definitely a connection there. It's actually good you brought that up. So, um, yeah, I don't. I think that's pretty much all I had. I mean, this is a very interesting debut for where Tony Scott will go because it's so different than anything else he went on to do. But you can still see the the touches are there. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. That's absolutely. You can definitely see kind of where he brings the style, but he just uses it to a completely different template. Yes. And it's fascinating. Very, it's very interesting. It's very intriguing. I, yeah, I still really enjoy it. I don't know, like at the end of this whole thing, I will, um, I'm sure rank my Tony Scott movies or something. It's like the very last episode, but this one's pretty high for me. I really, really enjoy this movie and it's, it's unique. Um, um, and well, that actually leads me before we finish up is I'm going to ask everybody at the end of this, uh, Tony Scott, when they come on every guest, uh, what is your favorite Tony Scott movie? Um, okay, I've got three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, my favorite one is one that I purposely didn't put my hand up for because I was too intimidated, and I'm pretty sure Mike would fight me for it. Okay. Well, we would have. Um, and that's Crimson Tide. Oh, Mike is on the Crimson Tide episode. Yes, when we get to that. I think, I think he said... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not breaking his heart because that is the <laughs> most Mike movie out of that I can think of out of um, that um, of this of his grouping of movies. But there's a way he just builds the tension with the dialogue, and then you have his quintessential style with it that I think is absolutely perfect. And I think it's just again you're going back to the casting with Gene Hack- yeah. Hackman and Denzel um, because it is these two acting, they're completely different acting styles of two men who do not take shit from anyone um on screen or off screen and 
so for them to butt heads and for them for you to be on switching sides constantly and that cast is on that submarine that is such a contained space I think is phenomenal piece of just um it's like one of the greatest dad movies it's one of the greatest or just greatest submarine (laughs) movies and there have been some pretty spectacular submarine movies um no it's it's pretty spectacular um though I do have a lot of affection for um deja vu um just because I love the first two acts I think again it suffers a third act kind of meltdown which we'll get into I think I think I'm on did I put my hand up for that one you did. I had to listen in front of you. You're on that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although I think Mark also wants me on. So it might be a double. It might be two of you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably good. That movie's pretty complicated. So if we have really, really more is. than one guest, then I think yes. we'll be good. We can all sort it out together. So... Yeah, because that ending does not make. I need to watch it because every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, that's right. We get to this part and then I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> um, and Unstoppable as well, the train, um, which yes. I think has a lot in common with Crimson Tide. But no, Crimson Tide is. Um, probably my my favorite um and the hunger is also in there because i definitely love love the hunger so much um so yeah those yeah i can't can't pick one um but those are my i was gonna say you don't have to just pick one you uh, (laughs) there's no no rules here um fair enough and those are all like different types of tony scott movies so that's interesting too it's different points in his career so uh i get it it's it's hard because yeah he's got like these distinct periods in his career so you know it's like pretty different it's still tony scott but it's just a very it's a different uh, style he's trying sometimes so um yeah i get it those are all those are all good choices <laughs> yeah no because i know you'll probably get into it comes in tide but that was always considered oh it's the top gun but under the sea and i don't necessarily think it is um just because i think there's a little bit more conflict going on in that movie but um and also Quentin Tarantino went on to write a few things on on that on that movie as well. Um okay. but no, I th- I think it's um I think he did a punch up. But um no, I I yeah, no, it's when I every time I watch it, I'm just like going, Oh crap, that that dialogue is just so good. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And that's a movie too I won't get too into it because I know we're gonna have an episode yeah, episode on it, but uh where I'm not gonna take away <laughs> can't tell me from mike but i will just say it's a movie with a lot of people talking but tony scott is so stylish that he makes that i mean the actors are great let's i mean they're great great actors gene hackman and denzel washington a lot of other people but um that tony scott makes that even more exciting than it is so just the way he shoots it and the way you know he handles it so um yeah i'm really looking forward to the episode with mike because that's definitely it it's among it's, it's i think most people would say it's among tony scott's best movies so um that should be a really yeah. fun conversation <laughs> no i'm really looking forward to it um you and to you and mike um actually um talking about it because there's so much to get into it i'm just going to be sitting there just like going yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just saying that a little bit there's gonna be a lot more to talk about so we'll be we'll be good oh yeah uh, yes. don't worry i'm taking it away from you mike you are gonna be <laughs> in the full glory of Crim- crimson tide and i'll be just sitting on my own interjecting into the podcast like i do when i'm listening to other people's podcasts um but um no it's it's it, this is going to be a really really great series and i cannot wait because i think there is again as you said there's so many phases to his career and i think he was such he's such a fascinating director and i think it was more than people gave him credit for um and with so i cannot wait for you to actually dig in and you can kind of see the ebbs and flows of his career it's going to be absolutely amazing oh yeah thank you i'm really looking forward to it that's and there's so many reasons why i want to do this and one is just that i looked at his filmography and it's like uh we've got this set number of films to look at you know it's so sad that he passed away when he did and i feel like he still hasn't quite got the 
credit he deserved. Honestly, I know it's come up uh, the past couple of years. He's been reevaluated. There was, uh, I thought there was a lot of Tony Scott love when they did that screen drafts episode recently, oh, yeah. um, which made me happy. I was, I was good. And uh, yeah, so I'm just, I feel like it's just to talk more about his movies and how, how great he was as a director. Um, I mean, there's, yeah, there's lots of reasons, but I'm sure I'll talk about more in like other episodes of the opening, but um, yeah, just a filmography that I think is yeah very interesting lots of different phases different kinds of movies it's um yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting i'm I'm looking forward to it and thank you so much for being here on the first one Lindsay. i really appreciate it oh no thank you for having me like i did definitely want to do the hunger but i didn't know if it was rude to go i would like to do your first one please um (laughs) i wasn't sure how that that went so to be able to come here and talk about um the hunger which is such a great movie um it's that i do absolutely love is been absolutely fantastic well, yes, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, and I will let you go ahead and just, uh, you can plug where people can follow you and follow your podcast. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I do have a podcast, don't I? Um, Shock and <laughs> Awe. Um, oh, I'm on all the usual apps, pretty sure. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Shock and Awe 1, same with Instagram. Um, those are probably the easiest way to follow me. And um you have met you could say have been on there in a couple of episodes we've done et and mac and me and um oh what was the other one we did before was was that the first one i had to think no we did uh nice guys and uh beyond the valley dolls yes we did nice guys and valley the dolls which um was a now that now now that i remember it, it was an absolute hoot um because those movies fitted together way better than I thought they were going to originally. Um, so yeah, that's where you can, um, where you can follow me. Great. Great. Uh, and I was going to say that that one was great. And the ET Mac and me one, I, I gotta say, I don't want to like toot our own horn here, but I'm really proud of that episode. <laughs> I, I, yeah, me I, too. I, I, I didn't know how it was going to go. Cause we, you know, Mac and me's in there and like, uh, you know, that's a real wild movie, but it was such a fun conversation, and when it when I listened back to it, I was like, "Oh, I, I think we did a good job. I really like this. I don't like to like build myself up too much, but I was I was genuinely proud of that episode." So. No, it was a really good episode, and it did really well as well. Um, just because I'm a really small, tiny little podcast, and when something kind of little blows up a little bit, I'm like, "Oh shit, people are actually listening right. to this." Um, um, so no, it's done really, really well, and yeah, I think that was someone something I was actually quite proud of, just because I think we got there was a tone, yeah that we managed to get with you picked though that double. So um, there was an amazing tone you managed to get with that. And it was really, really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. So we've done, we've done those two episodes. I can't wait to do another one. I am now I feel like I think of double features all the time. Like that's how my brain is starting to work. I'm kind of not great at it, but I am trying to put more together. I'm like, Ooh, that could be an idea for Lindsay. If I come up with it, like at least I I would just pitch you an idea. I would be on the episode. I'd be like, here's an idea for a double go for it. But um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun exercise. It's a very fun podcast. So everyone check that out. If you're not already following that and subscribed. Um, So, and I will just plug this show. If for some reason you never listened to film piece (laughs) before you're here for Tony Scott, I appreciate it. Um, So you can follow this podcast available for anywhere you can get a podcast. Uh, uh, just please subscribe, rate and review us in the Apple Store if you like. I'd really appreciate it. Um, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Film Feast Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at MattBlood87. And you can follow me and the podcast on Instagram at just Film Feast. It's all one word. And that is all we have for this first volume of Unscottable. I'm very excited to do 15 more of these. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It's uh, it's a project I've been kicking around for a very long time. And um, 
again, I got to give credit to Mark Warner for the idea, basically, because he talked about doing it. I thought it was brilliant. I love the name, Unscottable. You have to do mm-hmm. it. I talked to him and he said, I don't think I want to start a podcast. And he very graciously, I said, can I do the podcast? <laughs> and he said, go for it. Take the name. Go for it. So uh, Mark's great. He'll be on. He was on the When a Stranger Calls episode and he'll be mm-hmm. back for at least a couple of Tony Scott movies down the road. But had to give him another shout out because this really is like his brainchild. I just love the idea and I'm glad that we are doing it finally. <laughs> so uh, thanks, no, Lindsay. Mark, oh. Yeah, Mark's a good guy. He's actually going to be on Shock and Aura in a couple of months. Um, oh, nice. I've got, we've read a double lined up, so that's going to be great. Nice. Okay, that should be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. So, uh, Lindsay, thank you so much again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time.